I am not known um, for my good memory. And um, in fact, if ever you want to confess your sins to someone, I am a good person to do that with. Because by the time you've left my office, I will pretty much have forgotten what you said. Uh, I am not known for my great memory. And, and I, I can't remember much of my childhood. Um, but I do, I, do remember, I do remember one um, Christmas time uh, when I was a little boy, and I went to visit my aunt and my uncle in um, Bowness in Windermere in the Lake District. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night um, and it being pitch black and being completely disorientated. I didn't know which way I was on the bed. I didn't know where I was. And uh, I was very afraid. It was very black. It was very dark. And uh, I felt very lost. And I started to cry out. Uh, in, the, in the night, I started to, to shout out and cry out. I didn't know where my mum and dad were. I didn't know what was happening. And I remember finally the chink of light as the door opened and my aunt, bleary-eyed, came into the bedroom and started to comfort me and to straighten me out and put me the right way on the bed and explain where I was and everything was all right. And... and uh, and I finally got my, my senses back of where I was and, and that my parents were still there and everything was okay. And I remember that so clearly, that memory of feeling lost in the darkness at my aunt and uncle's house in Bowness. I also, as a child, was quite afraid of the dark and um, I uh, always had to have the landing light on when uh, I went to bed, I shared a bedroom with my brother Stephen and uh, we were in bunk beds. And, um, but I always had to have the door ajar and the light on because I was afraid of the dark. And um, there's something about darkness that is, uh, can be quite unsettling. Now, unlike our other pastor, Paul, um, the Grinch, as he called himself, and uh, his newfound love of Christmas, but his previous hatred of it or aspects of it that he mentioned last week. Um, I love Christmas. I love, one thing I love about Christmas is I love the lights. I love, I love these fairy lights around our balcony and I love, I love Christmas tree lights. I love walking down a gloomy street and seeing in the windows the Christmas trees and the lights shining. The living rooms always look so cozy and so welcoming. I love the candles and I love the open fire and uh, there's something about light that is very welcoming and very homely. The, um, the Danish, they call it hugger, don't they? The, the kind of the warmth of, of a hearth or of a, of a well-lit room. But more than the symbolic nature of of light and darkness, we find that these themes are found and prevalent throughout Scripture, and that light and darkness are something that are very much woven into our human existence. And um, Jesus, if I, if I could pick up on a, a theme of that, of the light and the darkness, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, Jesus um, came to, uh, to Galilee and um, I just want to read to you Matthew 4, 13 to 16. 
I'll start at verse 12. When, when Jesus heard that John had been uh, put in prison, he returned to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. There's this theme here of light and darkness, and it speaks here, Matthew speaks here of of Jesus moving to Capernaum. Some of us have been to Israel, been to Capernaum by the sea. And Matthew said this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, that, um, that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus fulfilled a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah from 750 years previous where he gave this prophecy. So I want to go back to Isaiah to see what Matthew was talking about and to, to take us back to Isaiah and to this prophecy 750 years before we come back to Jesus, who is described as the one who fulfilled this promise. If you go back in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah and around Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, um, <clears throat> you'll find this prophecy, you'll find it in Isaiah 9, at the start of Isaiah chapter 9, that Matthew 4 says is being fulfilled in Jesus, light coming into darkness. But if we go back to Isaiah and think what was happening 750 years before this prophecy was fulfilled, and we go back to, through the first several chapters of Isaiah, we see that Israel and Judah are in a mess if you remember, those of you who were here, our Inspired series and our timeline that we had out, we got to a point where Israel split as a nation into two. And there was the northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom was made up of two tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And Judah is where this is happening, where Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking, is prophesying. And Israel, or Judah, are in a mess. And Isaiah highlights some of the things that are going wrong with this people. There's an imminent threat to this nation of Israel and Judah from surrounding nations, from Assyria, which is the superpower that is threatening to attack Israel and attack Judah, and after Assyria comes Babylon, and these nations come and ultimately sack this nation of Israel and Judah. First of all, the northern kingdom, taking them off into exile and uh, dispersing them as tribes, and then the southern kingdom, taken off into exile um, into Babylon. But Isaiah, if you look at um, the picture of what Isaiah does when he starts to prophesy to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah, particularly the south, he starts to highlight the fact that they have wandered away from God, that they have gone their own way, that they've done their own thing. And if you read the first several chapters of Isaiah, you see some of the signs of what Isaiah is talking about. If 
You go to chapter two of Isaiah, verse six. Isaiah speaks out, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and they clasp hands with pagans. They're starting to turn to kind of superstitions and divination. In uh, chapter eight, Isaiah talks about them consulting with mediums and spiritual kind of gurus and looking into the occult. And rather than looking to God, to, to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to their God for their answers and for their guidance and for their covenant relationship, they start to turn to other things and they start to look to other things for answers. And Isaiah speaks out to them and says, you've gone after these Eastern religions. You've gone after spiritism. You've gone after the occult. You've gone after mediums, consulting the dead to try and find answers to life. And it's greatly displeasing to God and it's wrong. And then he goes on in chapter two. If you're looking at the, the picture that Isaiah paints, he says their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. So they're quite rich as a nation. There's plenty of money around. And there's a, a kind of a rampant capitalism. But also, Isaiah goes on and says, their land is full of idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So there's the kind of a sense of capitalism, of, uh, of, uh, of commercialism, of well-being, gold and silver, but there's also kind of a, a turning away from God at the center and, uh, and looking after these idols. For many of us, and uh, Tim Keller writes about this in his book, Hidden Christmas, there's kind of two parallel Christmases. There's the commercial Christmas, secular Christmas, which is a major public holiday now and gears up after we've finished with Halloween, then we move into Christmas, all the shelves get filled. And uh, it's, it's very commercial and, it's, and it's, um, it's all about the silver and the gold and the food and the drink and the parties and... Um, so there's that kind of Christmas, which is very big now in the, in the West and, and is celebrated around the world. And then there's kind of the, the Christmas that we celebrate as Christians, where we focus on the birth of Jesus and this holy day and this center of Christianity, as C.S. Lewis called it. And in fact, in 1954, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about these two Christmases. And uh, he wrote about um, Xmas on the one hand and Christmas on the other and these two parallel days were celebrated at the same time and, uh, and in this uh, nation of Nurban or a Britain spelt backwards, however you say that, was the, the, the fictional nation that C.S. Lewis wrote about in 1954, talking about these kind of parallel ways of looking at Christmas. But what Isaiah is doing as he starts to look at the nation of Israel, he starts to look at their silver and their gold, but also their idolatry and their turning after other things. And then in chapter 5 of Isaiah, you see, you see more of the, this picture that Isaiah is painting of the state of the state of the nation, and he starts to speak out in a number of woes or judgments. He says, woe to you who add, add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. So the, some of the people were kind of building houses and building houses and had more and more while others had less. 
Woe to those, he says in chapter 5, verse 11, who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. And then in verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. In verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. So um, what Isaiah is describing perhaps is not so different to the world in which we live. A world of kind of eating and drinking, of excesses in some ways, of an obsession with wealth or lack of it, of, a, of capitalism versus socialism. Uh, some people having a lot, some people not having very much. And, and, and also kind of postmodernism before it happened in our time where people call black, white and white, black wickedness good and good wickedness, where values are turned on their heads and society seems in a mess. And there's a, there's a weariness and a darkness about it. And Isaiah sums all of this up as we kind of see this picture of kind of gloom really and darkness and, and an impending judgment of God that he talks about as in his prophecy, it's all kind of summed up towards the end of chapter eight as it, as it culminates in this prophecy. He talks about consulting mediums and spiritists and, and so on. But then he says in, in chapter eight, 21, he says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. They will look towards the earth and they will only see distress and darkness and fearful gloom. The gloom of anguish is another translation of that. The gloom of anguish, a kind of a gloomy darkness. They will look to the earth. And this is kind of what, we have done in our secular Christmas, in our John Lewis adverts and our M&S adverts. And I was reading the paper a couple of weeks ago and it was the newspaper columnist um, analyzing the adverts of who's got the best Christmas advert. And there's one about an old man who's lonely and he goes to the pub and he finds community and and there's warmth there, and there's companionship there. And, and I was thinking about these kind of these shops selling their wares with the image of Christmas. And I was thinking about the newspapers selling their newspapers, analyzing the shops, selling their wares for an image of Christmas. And people look to the earth, and yet there is a kind of a sense of gloom or weariness in many of these things, and we still do the same things that Isaiah was talking about, where he's talking about getting up early and working late and going after the gold and the silver and building the houses and drinking the wine and trying to have the cheer and the food and the drink. Now, I am not a Grinch, and I, I love Christmas, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong in many aspects of the secular Christmas, of 
a celebration of family and a giving of gifts and a, a lighting of lights and a singing of songs. And I don't have any issue with any of that, but it doesn't ultimately fulfill us or satisfy us. And it is this parallel Christmas, this Xmas that C.S. Lewis wrote about back in 1954 that doesn't quite meet us where we're at. And it's people looking to the earth and yet there is a sense of a gloom of anguish. And that's what Isaiah is writing about. In the New York Times, there was an ad a couple of years ago, and it said the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That was in the New York Times. The meaning of Christmas is that love and Love will triumph, that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Remember that song, We, we Are the World? <laughs> we are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice that we're making. We are saving our own lives. It's true, we'll make a better day, just you and me. We are the world. We are the children. We are saving ourselves. We will make a brighter day, just you and me. And that is kind of the spirit of the age in which we live. That is what Isaiah is talking about when he says they will look to the earth and they will not be satisfied. They will be in the gloom of anguish. Vaclav Havel was the first president of the Czech Republic. And he had a first row seat looking at socialism, communism. There was an ex-communist nation. And then he saw the rise of capitalism and kind of the Western influence, the fall of communism. He had a first row view of both of these political, social, economic systems as the first president of the Czech Republic. And he said these words, he said, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself. Nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and a seeking of God is needed. Who sang those words, we are the world? We are saving ourselves. We will make a brighter day. Michael Jackson Vaclav Havel, a turning to and a seeking of God is not, is needed, is needed. Now we as Christians, we are not ultimately optimists in the sense of, to the point of, that we say we have the answers. We will make a brighter day, just you and me. We do not agree with the New York Times that says the meaning of Christmas is that we will be able to put a better world together of unity and peace. But as Christians, neither are we ultimately pessimists who believe only in a dystopian future of hopelessness and weariness and downward spiral nature of our world. Instead, what we do when we get to the end of Isaiah chapter 8 is that we start to read Isaiah chapter 9. And we start to get to the point where we fast forward 750 years 
and the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy as he looks on this world of weariness and gloom and doom and all of the failure of all of the world's systems to answer the needs of humanity. And what he does is he says these words, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And then we hear these words that are mentioned in Matthew 4. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And, and Isaiah, even as he rebukes the people and, and he doesn't mince his words, God tells him to name his children after kind of what's gonna happen. Swift to the plunder, swift to the spoil, he names one of his child. The Assyrians are coming. The judgment of God is coming. He doesn't dodge any of the issues of the darkness of his day but what he does is say, he says there's a light that's going to come into the darkness. And we sang it in one of our songs this morning. Do you know that all the darkness won't stop the light from getting through? Do you know that? I think of the gloom of anguish. I think at this time of year sometimes the pressure on us to feel a certain way to feel a certain sense of kind of joy because it's Christmas and we're all supposed to be happy and joyful and the preachers get up and start to preach on joy. And we feel a pressure sometimes to feel a certain way or to act a certain way. Or, and we may not be feeling that. We may feel the gloom of anguish. We may feel the, the weariness of a world around us that has got its challenges. And there are, when I look out at this church family and I, I hear the stories of what some of us are going through, in the, even in these last weeks, as Chris mentioned and prayed for, there is, there is great darkness around us. There is great gloom of anguish in some ways. But in the midst of all that, one is promised who will come that Jenny highlighted this morning in her Advent talk that we couldn't reach him, and yet he came to us, that he became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He came into our darkness and he declared himself to be the light of the world. And he stood up and he read from the scroll and he read Isaiah 61 that Chris read for us this morning. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus came and proclaimed light in darkness. And Isaiah says, you've enlarged the nation, you've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Look at his kind of his metaphors. They're not kind of our metaphors in 21st century Britain. 
for most of us, unless you're a farmer. But he said, look at the joy of those as they bring in the harvest. All of the hard work. I, any of you watch Clarkson's farm? It's about as near as I get to farming as, uh, as your average man. But I, I love watching that program. But that sense of joy after all of the waiting and all of, all of the waiting of a, of, a, of a farmer who sows the seed and, and, and rides the seasons and sees the storms coming in and fights off the pests. But when harvest time comes... The joy of that moment of bringing in the sheaf, bringing in the harvest, bringing in the grain. It's ready and there's great joy in that agrarian society. And, and Isaiah says a day is coming when it's going to be like that, where we bring in the harvest and there's great joy. And, and also it gives this kind of um, military metaphor of those that are sharing out the plunder when they've been successful in warfare. And they've won a great victory and they share out the plunder. They rejoice as men rejoice. As in the day of Midian's defeat, which was Gideon, and, uh, and Gideon's great victory over them, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. This is Jesus that he is speaking of ultimately the one that will break every yoke, every burden, everything that rests on people's weary shoulders. A rod it speaks of here. A bar. I think of your rod and your staff. They comfort me, even in the presence of my enemies. And then Isaiah goes on and he says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment Rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The war will be over. The warfare will be over. There will be ultimately peace. And then Isaiah goes on to say, for unto us a child is born. And to us a son is given. It speaks here of the grace of God. And to us a child is born Jenny highlighted again that the fact of God becoming flesh into the body of a baby, into, into the vulnerability of a, a child in the womb, God became flesh. To unto us a child is born, but to us a son is given. It is a gift of God, a gift of grace. And, and at the end of this prophecy, Isaiah signs it off with this flourish of a sentence, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. <laughs> it's not gonna depend on you. It's not gonna depend on your effort. This is God acting. The zeal of God will accomplish this. This is God's edict. This is God's word. This is God's promise, and he's going to do it, and nothing will stop it. And that is the grace of God, the grace of the promise of God, that unto us a son is given. We have not earned it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We will not make a brighter day, just you and me. We do sit in the gloom of sin and darkness, like the people of Judah, with threats outwards and inwards, but to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Tim Keller writes in his book, Hidden Christmas, of the times that he has spent over many years as a pastor comforting people by people's bedside, facing death and terminal illness. But he said, it was different when I got diagnosed with cancer, when I went through it. It was different. I had a different view of things. I had a different experience of things. And we have one, a wonderful counselor, a wonderful counselor who has been in your skin, who has walked where you have walked, where you are now walking, who knows what it is to face death, who knows what it is to face betrayal, who knows what it is to carry the weight of sin on his shoulders and to face separation and darkness. In fact, he hung on the cross and the whole of the world became dark. Darkness descended as the light of the world took upon our darkness upon himself. We have a wonderful counselor who knows what we go through, who knows the gloom of anguish, who knows the sorrow of loss, who knows the pain of separation. He is a wonderful counselor and we can look to him this morning. He is a mighty God. He's not only empathetic, sympathetic. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet he was without sin. But he, he is not only a great counselor, a wonderful counselor. He is also a mighty God. So he, he has great power he is not only a God of love, but he is a God of power. He's not only a God of, of empathy and sympathy, but he's a God of holiness and righteousness. And he marries these things. He is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, Isaiah says, over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From this time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the prophecy that Matthew was talking about in chapter 4 when he talks about Jesus coming to Capernaum and the light coming into the darkness. In John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. And in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus said these words. He said, I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. No one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I look at the comparison of chapter eight of Isaiah and those that look to the earth and are full of gloom. And then I look as we read into chapter 9 of Isaiah and the nevertheless and the light that comes and the child that is born and the promise of one who will deliver his people from their bondage. Jesus stands up and says, I am that child. I am that light. I am the one. If you believe in me, you will not stay in darkness. You will come into the light. We still 
celebrate as a nation two parallel days at Christmas. We still have a secular holiday, which many people celebrate that know nothing of God and nothing of Christ. But they are ultimately looking to the earth for something that only heaven can give. They are ultimately looking to themselves. When I look at the likes of Gwyneth Paltrow and Holly Willoughby and every other celebrity that's selling their words and that's saying you can buy these crystals and you can buy these, uh, these items and you can heal yourself and you can get one with the universe. It's ultimately humanism packed in different formats. But it is men and women looking to the earth for salvation and for solution and for light that they will never find in of themselves, that they will never find in this culture. They will never find it in a political system. They will only find it in Jesus Christ, the light of the world who pierces the darkness. Do you know that all the darkness won't stop the light from getting through? I do know that. And those of us who call ourselves Christians know that. And it is beholden on us to remind others and tell them of that too. That Jesus is the light of the world. And no one who believes in him will stay in darkness. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. It may have taken 750 years, but that light burst onto this earth and continues to shine brightly today. I don't think any of us, and I, I understand the depths of our human struggles and our human difficulties. I understand sometimes the difficulty of trying to behave or feel in a certain way within a human construct or a human holiday when it's the last thing on earth that we feel. But our hope this morning and our light and our salvation is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in him. And no amount of darkness can keep out that light from our lives. And if we will believe in him, we will not walk in darkness. We will not stay in darkness. We will have the light of life. I'd like to pray this morning for two sets of people as I draw this to a close. I'd like to pray for you if you have never encountered Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, and you are one of those people, like the descriptions throughout history of people that are looking to gold and silver and idols and anything else that is not God, to wine, to song, to all of these things to try and solve the human condition. But ultimately, if we put our trust and our belief in Jesus Christ, we will be saved and the light of his salvation will come into our darkness and dispel it. I'd like to pray for you and I'd like to invite you to come into the light and to know this light, which is Jesus Christ, the promised one. And secondly, I'd like to pray for those of you who would call yourselves Christians this morning. You may be watching online. You may be here in the building and you have sensed a sense of weariness or a sense of gloom or a sense of darkness. But I want to point you back again to the one, to Jesus, to the light of the world, who is your hope and your salvation. And you don't have to feel a certain way or celebrate a certain way this Christmas, 
but you can place your hand in his. He has placed his hand in yours. He has come down to become flesh. He is still your wonderful counselor. He is still your prince of peace, your everlasting father. He is still mighty God. So shall we pray together as we sit? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus Christ to be the light of the world, that anyone who follows him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus, you came into this world so that, not, that those who believe in you shall not stay in darkness. You came to proclaim a gospel that would release people from darkness and bring them into light. I pray for anyone here or within earshot of this message that still feels they are walking in darkness to turn this morning to the light, to believe in Jesus, to put their faith and trust in God and not in human endeavor. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we do that, as we believe in you, and in your birth, and your life, and your death, and your resurrection, that you live now in us. And I pray that there may be those here today that turn to Jesus and find salvation in him who came to save those that are lost. So forgive us of our sins and purify us from all wrongdoings and bring light into our darkness. Save us, we pray. And I pray, Lord, for the wider church and congregation and those this morning, God, that may be struggling with loss or darkness, human emotion. I thank you, Jesus, that you came into our flesh. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to save us. We don't look to the earth for our salvation. We don't and cannot save ourselves. We look to you as the light of the world. And Father, I thank you that no darkness can overcome it. No death, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no sickness, Nothing can overcome your light which shines in the darkness. I pray this morning, God, into the gloom of anguish of some of our hearts that your light will shine. I pray this morning that we would feel the warmth of the light of your face, your countenance upon us. I pray that you would turn towards us and that we would know your peace. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the light of your countenance would shine now upon your people. That your light would open that door, the chink would come in, Lord, we would sense your presence with us. I pray, Lord, for your comfort, that you will comfort your people. And I pray, Lord, that we also will shed this light and share it with others in these coming days. Lord, let your light shine in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.